Welcome back, everybody, from me, Tim Cable, to the Classic Rock Podcast. And coming up in this edition, some of the conventional and some of the unexpected of the unconventional. We're going to be hearing from a man whose name you will, on hearing it, think, hmm, don't know who he is. But I'll guarantee if you take a trip through your music catalogue, you will find him appearing. His name is Kasim Sultan. He is a bass player, he's a vocalist, he's a writer, and now he's a podcast producer and creator. And his remarkable history, when you look back at it, includes working with some of the biggest selling artists of all time on the biggest selling albums of all time. They all add up to around 85 million album sales. He was on the original Bat Out of Hell with Meatloaf, working with a longtime friend and confidant, Todd Rundgren. And he worked with him in Utopia, of course. He wrote Utopia's biggest charting hit. He worked with Hall and Oates. He worked with Jim Steinman. He worked with Paddy Smith. He worked with Joan Jett. In fact, we don't have long enough to go through all of the people that he worked with. But he isn't going to be talking about this podcast. It's called Unsung. It's the story of a rock star who, aged 60 or 60-plus, collapses on stage with a heart attack. He then returns home to the family that, quite frankly, has forgotten who he was, Apart from, of course, the paychecks that arrive every month. And that is where the fun starts. We're going to be hearing from Kasim shortly. But before we get there, a tale of the unexpected. It's not quite the Twilight Zone, but Alex Lifeson has returned to band duty with envy of none. Tempted by former Coney Hatchman and legend Andy Curran. And by the vocal talents, the special vocal talents of Maya Wynn. Now, I spoke with Andy a few days ago, and we talked about how the band came into being, his relationship with Russian Alex Lifeson, and of course, Coney Hatch. So let the journey begin. There is nothing wrong with your perception of reality. Do not attempt to adjust the illusion. We control the harmonics. We control your emotions. We will move you to the left. We will move you to the right. We can reduce the volume to a whisper or increase it to a deafening roar. Now is the time to submit quietly. We control all you hear and feel. You are about to enter a great adventure and experience the awe and mystery from your ultimate fantasies to your deepest fears from which you may never return.
as a whole some of the the very memorable collaborations and groups have all come about almost by accident or or fate and this could have been true here because had you not decided to be a judge in the talent contest you would probably have never met the vocalist my win and envy of none would probably never have happened you're absolutely right, Tim. There, there is some divine intervention or some kind of a lightning strikes. And, um, you know, as we all go through our lives and, and different roads that we're on, and you could have gone left or right, or you, if you weren't at that event, you wouldn't have met so-and-so. And, um, yeah, they're all a series, like even Alex Lifeson and myself, you know, this the ride of eventually becoming label mates with him was, you know, there was a Canadian band that was very successful called Max Webster and Kim Mitchell was the lead vocalist of that band and the guy who wrote all of the lyrics for Max Webster was a guy by the name of Pi Dubois and Pi came out to see Coney Hatch one night and we didn't have a record deal or anything and introduced us to Kim and Kim took us in the studio which led to meeting Ray Daniels and signing with Anthem Records so that that I mean to be successful, I, I think there's a lot of luck involved and, and lightning strikes and being in the right place at the right time, as you mentioned. So fast forward, you're right. If I hadn't been asked to judge this contest, um, I wouldn't have met Maya. And we feel that Maya is our secret weapon on this Envy of None project. And um, my God, you know, just uh, she lives in Portland, Oregon. I, I, can't, I haven't been to Portland since Coney Hatch toured in, in the early 80s. So I would have never met her. And so you're absolutely right. There's some kind of divine intervention going on here. I love <laughs> the, the bit where you say, well, you did a mentor call. This was the, the prize. And at yeah. the end of the call, yeah. she she literally stops you in your tracks and just says, well, actually, you know, can we work together? Can I work with you? Yeah. <laughs> we, we, and Tim, we jokingly said, there's an expression here. Um, there's a big city called Montreal. And we said this funny expression saying that person has the balls the size of Montreal. And, and so we joked and, and I said to people, man, I couldn't believe this 20 something year old woman had the balls the size of Montreal to take this mentoring opportunity to say, why don't we write together? I didn't think the call was going to go down that road, but good on her. And she, and I think that honestly, part of being so young and naive and green is you have no, you have no sort of boundaries. You just ask those questions. And I remember even the phone call where I said, Hey, by the way, um, looks like we've got Alex Lifeson playing guitar on this. And she said, Oh, that's really cool. I think my parents like him. It wasn't like, <laughs> It wasn't like she even realized the magnitude of what I was telling her. This guy's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he's going to be playing on this, right? Of course, 
you know, many months later, she would call me up and say, I, I, I can't believe that Alex is involved in this project. But there was, there was a very innocent, naive um, vibe about her asking me to write and collaborate with her and her response when I told her Alex loved her voice and wanted to add some guitars. It was, it was all quite innocent and green and naive. And four years later, I think she realizes the significance of Alex being in this project and in this band. You know what, I'm sitting here thinking now, I can imagine her going home to her parents and them saying, well, did you have a good day, darling? And she said, well, yes, you know, um, and uh, I have this, this, man called Alex, Alex Life, Lifeson uh, something or other he's, a, he's, a bit, he's played guitar for a while and you can imagine darling don't be stupid he's a, he's a rock and roll hall of fame he's not going to be working with you now grow up yeah <laughs> And, and, you know, it's, and, and I can laugh with you a little bit because I told you my parents were um, born and raised in Muswell Hill. And I remember, I remember my dad saying to me as I put together Coney Hatch and similar to what would have probably happened with Maya and her parents, my, as I was toiling and we didn't have a record deal and we were playing all these crappy venues and cover songs. And my dad would say to me, son, when are you going to get a proper job? Yeah. And, and, and it wasn't until we actually played the big arena opening up for Judas Priest in Toronto called Maple Leaf Gardens that my, I think the light bulb went on with my dad, like, okay, my son's doing okay. He's on the right trajectory. Right. And I think Maya's parents are like, oh, okay, this thing just got serious now, right? <laughs> <laughs> At the time when you, you send it over or spoke to Alex and said, listen, I've got found this amazing artist. And he came back and said, yeah, right, okay, I'm in. Were you surprised? I mean, when you, when you said yeah. it out there, Jim, were you expecting him to come back and say, yeah, this is great, let's, let's jump in? Well... I have to be honest with you, Tim, I wasn't that surprised because my instincts were that I had really found a diamond in the rough. I'd really found someone special. Her her um, gift of melody and her grasp of harmonies, untraditional harmonies, I might add, and, and her lyrics were, were wise beyond her age. So my instincts were that Alex was going to feel the same way I did. And he, w and he immediately, as did Alfio Annabellini, he, they were like, where the hell did you find find this woman. She's amazing. Let's go. What are we waiting for? So I guess maybe my instincts were that Alex was going to, I was, fingers were crossed a little bit, but he immediately felt what, what I felt and same with Alfio. It was amazing. I was reading some of the things that he said and he was hugely complimentary about Maya. She said she was able to bring this whole ethereal thing through her sense of melody. I've, I've never had that kind of inspiration working with another musician, which is a very, very big compliment when you look at his background. And he went on to say, yeah, when we say she's special, it's because she's fucking special. <laughs> <laughs> I know very high accolades considering Getty Lee and, and Neil Peart yeah. were, were, you know, and, and, but, but he, I've done a couple interviews with Alex Tim and I'll elaborate a little bit on that because he certainly wasn't trying to be um, disrespectful to his bandmates with Rush, but th there was, there was a different uh, writing process and, and with Neil would bring in the lyrics and then they would toil over the melodies with, and try to put melodies to Neil's lyrics. So 
this this ride of being inspired by um, Maya uh, was very different than his ride with Rush, and, and it it got to the stage where he said to me. Um, you know, I don't want to put on any guitars until I hear what Maya's vocal ideas are, because I, I get so inspired by them. And he speaks about this dance that he has with her, with her melodies and vocals that he would intertwine his parts and his soundscaping and these very non-traditional guitar sounds around her vocals. So I don't think it was any slight on, um, the, on how he had composed for the last 40 years with the other guys. It was just so inspiring for him to work with this young female vocalist. And, um, and all, all of us realize that she's added quite a contemporary sound to this. It sounds very fresh and new. This isn't all a couple of old guys churning out classic rock mm -hmm. here. This is, we feel that this stuff sounds very now and fresh. And I think it was, it was quite high accolades, as you said, but very complimentary for her at the same time too. It's been what he has been waiting for. Everybody has been watching, you know, Getty and Alex and wondering what they would do when they would reappear, you know, what type of project would, would tempt them. Uh, but again, he said, coming into this project of any time and energy has felt like a, a rebirth, and my horizon is now sparkling. So he's clearly yeah. he's clearly now found what he was looking for, if indeed he was looking for anything. Well, and, and I'm going to touch on this a little bit because we all know the very sad chapter of Neil's passing and mm. pretty much the end, ending of Rush. They've all been very vocal about the fact that they, they there will be no Rush. They're not going to carry on. They're not going to hire another drummer. I'm, I'm hopeful as a Rush fan that there might be a Lee Lifeson thing. But I think one of the, one of the human stories that I can tell you about this that really has nothing to do with, with music or anything is that I think this project of Envy of None and Maya and this the, the, the chord that she struck, no pun intended, with Alex and, and that relationship brought Alex out of a very dark place, a very, a very sad, mournful place. And I think everybody was worried, like, are these guys ever going to want to make music again? So on a personal side and being friends with Alex, I love the fact that this has got him out of, out of that, that morning place where, where he's now, um, writing music and, and being active and, and collaborating and composing. And I think there's been an outpouring of love from the Rush community as much as this doesn't sound like Rush. I think the Rush fans are very happy to see Alex, um, composing music again. The name, Envy of None. How did that come about? Okay, so quick story on that. We were about six six songs deep in it, and I had a conversation with Maya, and I said, well, we've got all these silly working titles for songs. I guess we should come up with a name for this band or project. And, and, um, and she said, yeah, where do you think we should start on this? And I said, I don't know. I mean, you're out in the middle of nowhere in, in the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. I'm here in Toronto. Alf is in Hamilton. Uh, Alex is in Uxbridge. And she said, back up. What did you say? You said middle of nowhere. I like that. Let's go with middle of nowhere. <laughs> so, so, we, so for the longest time, we, called the, we, were, we were calling this project middle of nowhere. 
Enter David Quinton Steinberg, the name, you know, it might be familiar to you because he played drums on the record, but he's actually Alex's attorney and he's got a very colorful career. He was in a punk band called The Mods and he played with with um, Stib Baders and the Dead Boys. So we like him. He's one of the cool lawyers. He's a, he's a lawyer with a, with a conscience and a music uh, background, right? And he said, oh boy, you guys better do a name search on Middle of Nowhere and I can do that for you from my office here. So he, I can hear him typing away. He goes, bad news, Andy. There's about five different bands called Middle of Nowhere. You're going to have to start with a new one. And I said, oh, damn it. Are you, are you serious? He said, yep. But he goes, I, got, I, got, I have a name that I've been holding in my back pocket for a while that I, ha- that I wanted to use. And you can have it. I'm going to gift it to you. And I said, what is it? He said, envy of none. And I go, oh, I like that. Where the heck does that come from? And he said, I don't know. He said, I think I did some paper for my law degree and we were studying Roman philosophers and it's from Ovid and the, and the very last quote is, and you will be the envy of none. (laughs) And I said, I said, send me that quote. And I I called Alex and who's got quite a sense of humor. Everybody knows that the boys in rush had a really good sense of humor. And he goes, Andy, I love this. Here we are four people just writing music in their bubble and we will be the envy of nobody the envy of none. This is perfect for us. <laughs> and the album so cover. Oh, so yeah, sorry, stuck. carry on. Yeah, no, so it's stuck. And, and mm-hmm. we also like that there's no real, you know, there's no connotations of it. it. Doesn't It doesn't scream like we're a rock band or a pop band or anything. It's just, it's quite vague in its, um, in its meaning, I think, you know. Oh, it is. And you wouldn't guess either from the album cover. You uh, took a bit of inspiration from Storms of August and you, know, you wanted something yes. that had absolutely no relation whatsoever to the album or its tracks. And you ended up, I uh, found this guy, but you ended up with a, a design studio in Lebanon. Yeah, <laughs> that was a, that was a, a product of many hours scouring images online. And just again, like you said, that that lightning strike moment where, that we spoke about with Maya and, and judging that contest. And here I am late in my bed one night just scouring images and I stumble upon Eli Rezcala and his work and these stunning images that were so eye-catching and um, evocative. And I sent a few of them out to everybody in Envy and None and said, what do you think of these? I like, I love these images. And we gravitated towards the two girls on the cover, um, who, who Eli had, had already created this ad campaign for a high end women's luxury purse company, believe it or not. So we, we called him up and we said, would you, A, would you be able, would you be open to licensing these to us? And B, if so, can we muck around with the images a little bit? So we did, we took the purses off and the guys at Snapper K-Scope, uh, Richard Beeching, who was the art director, came up with this idea to put these pills on. And I was like, what, what are these pills? And he goes, I don't know, they have a blue pill. Or a, Do you want a blue pill or another pill? So we mucked around with the artwork a little bit. And a funny story to tell you, I did an interview and this, uh, this gentleman said to me, do you remember the Lucille Ball episode where Lucille and Ethel Christ. were working in a chocolate factory and they had these little, they, they had these outfits on that remind me of your ladies on the cover. And I thought about this, but, um, 
you look at it and Alex said it reminds him a little bit of Roxy Music Private Life with the two girls yeah, yes, on there yes. or or the Siren cover but we were big fans of Storms you know we we you think about Dark Side of the Moon or House of the Holy House of the Holy Zeppelin and you look at them and they're just so eye-catching. But as you said, Tim, no real relation to the music inside. And I'm of the vintage where I would go into record stores and flip through miles and miles of vinyl. And sometimes I'd pick up a record and simply buy it on the strength of the cover alone, going, oh, this is, I wonder what's inside the box, and then go down that ride. And we we loved just how clean and crisp and stark the image was. And, and um, I just think it, it mission accomplished. It, it, it is quite eye-catching. It catches your attention immediately, and you immediately ask, what is this? And, and it's whatever you want it to be. If it's the girls eating chocolate in the factory, good on you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to touch on your relationship with Alex here, which goes back to when you first set eyes on him on stage in Massey Hall, because you were yeah. there when they recorded all the world's a stage. Yeah, and good, it, Tim, great doing your homework on that, because that's true. And, um, you know, growing up in Toronto, Canada, there's a couple interesting things here. So certainly Rush were the one of the biggest things and, and, and one of the biggest imports ever to come out of this 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 city. So you could not help avoid anything that Rush were doing. And, and it was a big deal in knowing that they they had um, struck it in the States and were playing in Europe and everywhere. So, and, and I loved the band and I saw them um, that night at Massey Hall and that was the first time I saw them. And I think I ended up buying a Rickenbacker bass um, for my love of Getty Lee and Chris Squire was another favorite bassist of mine. But, you know, Media, subsequently becoming label mates with those guys in 82, again, was a pinch me moment going, oh my God, I can't believe that this band that I grew up loving and I would, they, they would religiously play Toronto um, New Year's Eve at the big hockey arena called Maple Leaf Gardens. And I would go see them and I, I've, I probably have a over 20 tickets before I even met those guys uh, where I had gone out as a fan to see them. And so you think about that chapter, um, even though Coney Hatch were label mates, we never got to open up for them. But many years later, when I went out on my own and had my uh, the, the self-titled um, Andy Curran solo album, we uh, opened for Rush on the Roll the Bones tour. And I was like, oh my God, that, like I can't even believe that I'm opening up for my heroes here. And walked into the dressing room and there was a bottle of champagne with a note, Andy, welcome to the tour, which just tells you the type of guys, classy guys they are. And then fast forward, Tim, you know, when I sort of put down my bass and stopped my touring years and worked with them at the record label for, for a good 12 to 15 years, that was where I really started to solidify my relationship with all three of them, not just Alex. But, um, but Alex and I spoke a lot about music and, and who our favorite bands were. And we spoke about our love for film and, and soundtrack music and people like Danny Elfman and Mark Mothersbro and Trevor Rabin and um, these, these musicians that had gone on to almost have a second career writing music for film and television. And we spoke about collaborating together, and that, that was the first time the lines got blurred from their record company guy, A&R guy, to 
should we collaborate? And that's where I think, again, another lightning strikes moment where the boundary was crossed between I'm part of their management team and part of their label. And never would I call any of the boys up and say, hey, you want to write some songs together? It was just taboo. I wouldn't go there, Tim. But um, <laughs> we, ev we eventually did cross the threshold of collaborating music together. And when Alex was working um, post-Rush, the, the R40 tour, was he was working on some instrumentals. I have a funny story for you. That he called me up out of the blue and he said, Andy, if I send you some, some music files, would you be interested in playing some bass on it? So go back to what you just said, 16-year-old kid seeing him at Massey Hall yeah. going, what? what is going on here? I'm getting a call from one of the guys and rush to, like, I'm, I'm just shaking my head and talking to myself going, in what world does this happen? And I jokingly said to him, Tim, well, don't you know any other bass players? Um, they, you should have a guy whose initials are GL on speed dial. Like, why don't you phone him? And he said, no, he's busy writing his book. And it would really mean a lot to me. I did a guide bass and I'm not a bass player. Please do this for me. And maybe I can return the favor one day, which ended up being me asking if he would consider playing guitar on Shadow and which eventually became Envy of None. So all of these little roads that you're talking about in the journey of life that we're on where they where they intersect and you get these opportunities. I'm I consider myself really lucky and blessed. I really do, Tim.
have to mention your debut on stage and on um, vinyl with Coney Hatch, who was uh, 41 years ago. Uh, released your debut album but over here this was the time we'd gone through the new wave of, of british heavy metal and we were coming out 82 83 yeah that band coney hatch was in kerrang magazine a lot they loved you yeah you know it, well first of all when you mentioned 41 years it makes me feel like a bloody old geezer doesn't it but um, I, think, I, I, I think about my first trip. I, I think about my first trip to the UK, and my parents brought me there in, in 1979. And um, I remember buying the debut uh, Sex Pistols record when I was there, which I still have. Um, never mind the bollocks. And um, and and we were kind of trolling around uh, Muswell Hill, and my parents were showing me where they where they grew up, and we were we were driving by this. Uh, wall with this big building behind it and I said what the heck is that and my mom said that's Coney Hatch that's that used to be a loony bin and I said oh my god yeah. and she said and and she said I used to be afraid that the loonies were going to jump over the wall on my way walking home from school and so I wrote it down in a book where I was writing lyrics and stuff because I had aspirations of being a musician back then and um, I kept the name, convinced the other Coney Hatch guys to, to, that this was a good name and wasn't it cool? We were going to be named after a loony bin and we took the L out because it's spelled C-O-L-N-E-Y. And we That's Americanized right. yes. we, we, we Americanized it, right? But um, it's really interesting about the, the love affair that we had with Kerrang! that I think kind of spilled over into Sounds magazine too. You know, Sounds did some features on us. Yeah, but as yeah, you yeah. said post sort of new wave of British heavy metal, there was this, uh, uh, you know, between us and Triumph and Anvil, um, there was, you know, maybe Helix in there and a couple of bands. And it was almost like Kerrang! were digging and going deep down the rabbit hole. And maybe the association with the, with the name being named after the, the British, um, you know, a lunatic asylum, as they called it back then, or a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> and we had this love-in with them, and they, and they reviewed all our records. And, um, and, and you know, I'm quite embarrassed that I was given Wanger of the Week uh, one year, um, with some, some, <laughs> some awfully rude trousers that I was wearing, skin tight back then. But, but um, they loved us, and, 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 it, and it actually spurred interest for us many years later 30 years later we did coney hatch four and i think because of kerrang there was this renewed interest in europe and the crazy part was tim that we never toured there there was a bunch of tours that were canceled we were supposed to play with white snake and richie blackmore's rainbow and we never got over to the uk to play and then after we released coney hatch four in 2017 I think the foundations of the seeds that um, that Kerrang! and Sounds Magazine had laid for us, we had all this renewed interest. And many years later, we came back and played um, Firefest in Nottingham in the UK. And that was the first yes, time yes. we had ever played in the UK. And there was a huge lineup of all these British lads going, we've, we've been waiting 30 years for you guys to come here and play. And, <laughs> and it was just like, oh, my God, they're still, after all of these years, there's still fans in the UK and Brazil and Germany and France and Belgium. And we had this renewed interest. So 
So we've been playing over there, Weekend Warriors. We'll go over and play the odd gig in Europe now. You, I mean, you toured with a who's who of the A-list. Judas Priest, Edgar Winter, Iron Maiden. Yeah. And what was it like? I mean, you, did, you worked with Steve Harris's British Lion as well, um, yeah. I saw. Yeah, uh, well... But what was I, it like? I mean, because Maiden were huge back then. Oh, that was that oh. was not far off of Number of the Beast time. It was exactly Number of the Beast. So 82, Screaming for Vengeance, 83, Number of the Beast, arguably the biggest, you know, the, those bands at the pinnacle of their career, or at least the records that broke them wide open internationally. So, um, Tim, we went from playing, I'm going to say, you know, sort of 500 seaters in our own in, in our own country, and we were starting to create a buzz, but we immediately jumped from 500 to 1,000 to being out in front of 18,000 people with both of those bands and <laughs> catapulted into these big arenas, our videos being played on MTV. And, um, you know, I consider myself a punter at heart. You know, I'm a music fan and I had posters of yeah, yeah, Edgar yeah. Winter and Ted Nugent and Cheap Trick and I, they were posters on my wall. And then to fast forward to be shaking hands with you know, Peter Frampton knocking on our dressing room saying, I'd like to meet you guys. And I'm like, oh my God, what is, <laughs> I'm, I'm li like living out a childhood fantasy and, um, and cutting our teeth and being thrust into the stage, like opening up for Judas Priest, you really have to be on your game to win those fans over. And those were very formative years for us to go, okay, we're in with the big boys. We're in with the A-list, right? As you said, and, um, you know, playing in, playing with Ted Nugent and Cheap Trick and uh, the list goes on and on. And they, they are all just so memorable. Those years are just like, I, I can't, the, 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 even though they happened back in the 80s, I can, they, they, it feels like yesterday to me. And it brings us full circle because when Envy and None, the album comes out and the reception is, is a welcoming one, which, which it will be. I mean, let's be honest. Does this then raise the possibility, not the certainty, but the possibility that there may be an appearance on a stage somewhere, not a, not a tour, but yeah. possibly, you know, doing the odd thing here. I mean, the festival circuit will be, I would imagine within the next 12 months, we'll be back to where it was pre-COVID. Uh, so is that a possibility? Because I know that Alex and it isn't particularly interested in doing tour, long tours, and mm -hmm. quite frankly, you don't blame him. Yeah. No, Tim, the answer is yes, it does raise the possibilities because, as you said, um, Alex is in no rush, uh, no pun intended, to get out there again. He's done it all for 40 years and um, and he's yeah. earned the right to, to um, spend some time with his family. But he did tell me um, that he would entertain a handful of shows if they were special or if there was a... Um, an invitation to to get out onto a middle slot of a of some kind of a festival, he would absolutely entertain that. I mean, I'm second in line. I've I've played my share of gigs, and then a lot of people they don't realize all of the downtime in between. They they only see that one or two hours on stage, which is very that that's the enjoyable part of it. But the driving and traveling and hotel rooms and downtime and yeah, yeah. Um, that, that it gets to be a grind and. Um, and so that part of it, you're correct. I, I could not see Envy of None doing 
any kind of lengthy touring, but certainly if the opportunity came up, we would entertain it. And I think we're very much in a, in a, in a let's see mode. Like if, if, if the reception is really, really strong and unavoidable, and, and that has been the number one question on all of the interviews for, for us, my, myself, Alex, and Maya, will we see you live? I think it would be fun to play these songs live. It would be challenging. There's a lot of um, a lot of layering and a lot of soundscaping that I think would be challenging, but we're up for it. And um, I, I think, Tim, we'll just see how it goes. It's a, it's a let's see, but it's not off the table for sure. I've seen the words used to describe the music. Uh, mesmerizing, emotive, cinematic... Um, this uh, mesmerizing expedition, haunting, melancholy, dark, uh, amazing, emotional, and uh, Alex's uh, Alex's word trippy. Yeah, but yeah. I think every one of those sums it up because <laughs> when I when, I, when we put it on and, play, uh, and played it here, there isn't a time of day when you could put that on that it wouldn't fit. It would be great first thing in the morning. It would be wonderful last thing at night, and it would be great to chill out to in the middle of the day. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say that. And I, and I think you're right. It is very tough to put your finger on what type of, uh, of, of music this is, but it's certainly a ride. It's, it feels like a headphone record to me. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think it's one of those, those records that, that grows on you. And, and we had such a... It, you know, I think the vibe that comes off it in Trippy, it, it, you're right. The, the vibe that comes off it is indicative of how much fun it was making this record in low stress. It wasn't, there was no record company involved. There was no A&R guy. There was no producer. There was nobody over your shoulders going, you're wasting time in the studio. So it was quite a, a, a low stress record. And I think it comes out. Um, when you listen to it, but I will tell you, you know, people have said to me, Andy, if you could give us a, a, a comparison, what would it be like? And I often say, well, picture Massive Attack had a car crash with garbage and they have an evil uncle whose name is Trent Reznor, but um, <laughs> their second cousin who is all of the guys in Depeche Mode. They're the, and, you know, it's like put it in a blender and it's all of those things, right? <laughs>
bit of classic Tony Hatch there to end that feature. And that was Andy Curran talking about Envy of None. Their debut album is out on April the 8th. And I can tell you, it is a great album. Uh, time to move on to meet Kasim Sultan to talk about Unsung, the podcast, and his career working with and on so many rock legends output, including Meatloaf, who he worked with on many occasions, both in the studio and on the road, the original Bad Out of Hell, and right the way through to the 1990s. So let's begin with a bit of classic Meatloaf. Now, Bad Out of Hell has been played almost on rotation, uh, since his death in January. So he's another of those timeless meatloaf classics.
walk across the wild for you. Across the fire for you. Do anything you ask me to. I'll laugh for you. How do you start a podcast? A frog pod is. Podcast. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Unappreciated and unloved. I guess I shouldn't whine. My name is Alex Sultan, the bass player for some of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Yeah, that's right. Welcome to my nightmare. Everyone thinks I'm living the dream. And after 40 years of being on the road, of course, what happens? I collapse on stage. And you'd think being sober for 15 years would buy me a little sympathy for my love and family. They didn't even show up to the concert. Couldn't find a babysitter. Bible study. Band rehearsal. For starters, there's my oldest daughter, Marnie, who's got a loveless marriage and a career in politics. In that order. I can't talk. I'm heading into a council meeting. Fine. I'll come to you. Oh, oh no, no. No, Dad. Marnie's been holding this family together in my... Absence. This is a huge deal for me. It's election day and I need my family there. Oh, shit, Marnie, I'm sorry. Don't be. I won without your help. Apparently, there's three more people out there who love me. Then there's my son, Doug. Yeah, he's something else. Dad, you legit died on stage. It's on YouTube. Oh, during which song? Dad, we lost mom already and I'm too young to be an orphan. You're 30. I'm 27. Who is going to adopt me? I thought he'd follow in my footsteps. But I didn't realize that men as a drummer in a death metal band. I just came from band rehearsal. Full makeup for a rehearsal. You dress for the job you want. And my youngest daughter, Kelly, a nurse with a heart of gold. Dad is lucky the Lord didn't take him, but you know, God works. In mysterious ways. But I'm pretty sure the guy she's about to marry is a weirdo sex cult leader. I'm marrying a man of God. And Jesus will keep us on track. So you're marrying Jesus too? Ugh, grow up. Then there are the other people in my life who make every day interesting. Like my new best friend, Frank. Oh, you gotta give the people what they want. Music, personality, feet. My girlfriend, I I mean manager, Olivia. We need to talk about your career. Then there's my doctor who reminds me of that guy in the paper chase. If you keep running around like this, it's lights out. And my granddaughter, Sophie. Cute, 
doesn't begin to describe her. I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. I'm not a stranger, Sophie. I'm your grandpa. I didn't know I had a grandpa. My kids think I'm ridiculous, raunchy, and self-destructive. Dad created an OnlyFans account. (laughs) And oh yeah, they don't know this yet. I'm broke. This is destroying my social life. But hell, I taught them all how to play music. I taught them to never quit. I gave each one of them an appreciation for life. And nothing compares to being together with your whole family. Am I right? Even if it is Staten Island. My life is Sung, the rock and roll comedy podcast. Unsung, the rock and roll comedy podcast. Now, it's it's difficult to to find in this uh, business and industry anything that's new and original. Uh, But Uh this is because nobody's done one before. And uh, I've listened to it, listened to it in the car. And uh, I mean, it's quite funny. And the thing is... I understand that you initially thought about doing this for television. And after I read that, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, this has worked perfectly on television. Yeah, uh, we, de- we, we did uh, initially want to um, uh, pitch it to, uh, you know, not only just networks, but like Amazon, Netflix, Hulu um, and all the streaming services. Uh, unfortunately, the 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 problem with that is that it's just so incredibly difficult to uh to to get eyes and ears on uh on a pitch like that or, or any pitch for that matter yeah yeah um, so uh so rather than uh, than go through through that you know painful process <laughs> we decided that uh you know what would be cool is if we just did the did the first uh, six episodes as a podcast and create a buzz uh, and get people talking about it, and hopefully at at some point in the not too distant future, um, we can go to those same services and networks and say, hey, listen, you know, we got a little bit of a, of a buzz going about this project. Let's you know, let's take a look at it and see if you might want to. Uh, to uh, to have a, a part in bringing it to uh, to to a screen, uh, and this yeah. is loosely based on the real life of a sober rock and roll guitar legend, and of course <laughs> yeah. the the question that everybody wants to ask is, how much of you is actually in here? Um, you know, surprisingly enough, there is uh, there there's a good amount of my life in uh, within each episode. We did, um, in fact, sit down and specifically uh, draw on instances from my own experience, um, and it, it it you know it. It's pretty, it, it, it's pretty interesting. Uh, I do have three children, which uh, uh, is is uh, is you can see that in in the podcast, and uh, and I am a, a solo artist as well as playing with uh, with a lot of other bands. Um, the, uh, the 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 specific stories uh, that we are um, 
that we're looking at are live. We take poetic license with it. My my daughter did. Uh, my youngest daughter did not get married on top of a pool in a backyard, <laughs> um, and, and she didn't. She her husband, who I love to death, is not a, uh, a an evangelist uh, having an affair with his uh, with the pastor of the church. <laughs> um, my eldest daughter uh, is a, is a force to be reckoned with, much like Marnie in the uh, in the podcast. Uh, uh, but she is not a councilwoman, um, and I do have a granddaughter. But I also have three uh, three other grandchildren. So, in any case, um, you know the stories take shape the way they the the way that uh, it, it it makes it most interesting for an audience. And the um, story's been played out many many times. I mean, rock music fans or music fans will will know the stories. You know, yeah. you have yeah. heart attack on stage. Rock star yeah, wonders I, I have, why after uh, he's well, been sober have, for fifteen years, and, right. and it's yeah. like you're sitting there thinking, mm, "It isn't the last fifteen years; it's the previous <laughs> thirty, where you consumed three lifetimes amount." <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's pretty true. Um, uh, and, and I was just about to say that uh, that one of the main. Uh, 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 licenses that we took was I, I have never I have never collapsed on stage um, <laughs> but it certainly makes for an interesting opening <laughs> it does because the the father comes home and again it's Sunday trying to reconnect isn't it with the with the family who are suddenly being introduced to somebody that they don't really know because this <laughs> yeah. is a guy who is now wanting to take an interest in things that they've done and things that they're right. doing, which is yes. obviously now construed as interference. Yeah, interference or like, how dare you, you know, after all this time, you know, come in and all of a sudden want to take control of situations that you really weren't a part of from day one, you know. Um, so it, it, it's, you know, and it, the funny thing is, and the dichotomy is that um, Alec, the main character, uh, was always uh, um, interested in, uh, in the family. He was always a, wanted to be a part of the family. It's just that his job, which was touring the world and playing with, you know, famous musicians as well as having a solo career, his job took him away from home. But, you know, he did provide for the family. He did love them. It was just, it's, you know, it's just one of those things that uh, it has its own life. Uh, and, um, and that's where the, 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 the correlation between, um, uh, you know, be actually being there and providing for the family, that it, it just, it's a train wreck. I'm looking forward to the, uh, to the bit I haven't got to yet. When they come to terms with the fact that he's home, and they're yeah. going to have to look after him a bit. And they yeah. think, well, okay, he is it? And then they don't actually know that he's broke yet. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's that, you know, <laughs> there's that. And, uh, and that's something that will be explored more in season two, which we're in the process of putting together right now. Uh, we do pick up little bits and pieces uh, that relate to you as well from various quotes in it. And it, when you actually look at your career and what you've done and who you've been with and played with, etc., when he keeps dropping quotes like, yeah, it was like when I was out with Meatloaf. And you think, <laughs> ah, yeah, there's another one. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, well, that was, you know, I mean, that that's that just draws on my experience of uh, 45 years on the road, you know, and playing with uh, with everybody from uh, Hall and Oates to Todd Rundgren to Meatloaf and Richie Sambora and Joan Jett and uh, Patti Smith and yeah, a ton of people. Um so, it, you know, there's always there, there's always stories to be told. Well, I, I do have to touch on this extraordinary career of yours. I mean, literally from the moment that you graduated in 1973, right up until now, it's been a never ending collaboration with some of rock music's most legendary um, performers. I mean, even from your first serious uh, outing when somehow, and I've no idea how, from where you were, you, you teamed up with Steve Hillage uh -huh. in, in 1976. And what was his most successful album ever? Yeah, um, that's actually, uh, funny enough, is the, the very first album I ever recorded. Uh, I had uh, uh, just joined Utopia that April. I just started working with uh, with Todd uh, in that band in Utopia, and Todd got a production because that was a, a point in his career that uh, he was a very very sought after uh, record producer. Um, so Steve, uh, who I, I did not know who Steve Hillage was. Um, and he uh, he came up to Woodstock, and uh, I we we met. It was Steve and his uh, his lovely wife uh, Maquette, uh, and uh, and we started recording this record. That uh, and I, I was just you know I mean what <clears throat> wound up Don Cherry uh, was was playing on the record, and uh, I, I was just completely taken aback by Steve and his. Uh, his kind of um, his moon child, his moon child ways, uh, and it was a prog album that uh, I was just along for the ride. You know, I I had no clue as to where it was going or what or how to approach it, other than just drawing on some well that uh, that I had uh, uh, managed to put together over the the previous five, six, seven years. Your relationship with uh, Todd Rundgren has been a lifetime friendship and collaboration. Uh, from that time you joined Utopia, how did you how did you come into contact with him initially? Um, well, I did not come in contact with him uh, directly. My uh, my the the way that I fell into that band was through a, a brilliant. Uh, arranger uh, and uh, songwriter and musician Michael Kamen, who ah yes uh, yes yeah, yeah. <clears throat> who I uh, I had oh, had befriended me uh, and kind of on, on some level took me under his wing while I was playing keyboards with Cherry Vanilla, uh, who was David Bowie's publicist at at the time in 1974, and uh, Michael was uh, was teaching me piano. Uh, and um, I, I had gone over to a friend's house here uh, in New York City uh, who needed a ride to the airport. At J he needed a ride to JFK Airport. Uh, his name uh, is Earl Slick, and he was the guitar player for David Bowie at the time. Um, and so when I, when I walked into Slick's house, uh, he said, hey, do you feel like playing bass for Todd Rundgren? 
And I said, I, yeah, I guess, I don't know, sure. So uh, Slick knew me as a bass player. Michael knew me as a, as a piano player. He said, okay, Slick said, okay, when we get to JFK, I know this is a very convoluted story. Um, and, and so he said, when we get to JFK, give Michael Kamen a call and he will recommend you. I called Michael Kamen when we got to the airport. He said, you play bass? I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I uh, initially am a bass player. He said, oh, I thought you were just a keyboard player. He said, no, no matter, I'll recommend you hands down. He called uh, Roger Powell, who was the keyboard player for Utopia, uh, and said that, uh, that he had a candidate for the auditions. Um, I borrowed $20 from my uncle and uh, took a bus the next day up to Woodstock, uh, learned about four or five Utopia songs, uh, and then Todd came in the next day, uh, and we played together, and the rest is my history. You wrote their most successful track, or the single, the one that charted. Yeah, I've been very, very lucky. Um, the, the, the story behind that uh, Utopia single, which was the most successful single that the band had, was um, I wrote that song called Set Me Free <clears throat> because I was on, uh, I had been signed to Bearsville Records as a solo artist, and I always wanted to do my own record. Bearsville uh, didn't think that I was ready at that time, and I wanted to get out of my contract. They did not want to let me out of the contract without um, a hefty penalty. So uh, when when I had to pay Bearsville Records $50,000 and, and uh, another five points on whatever record I did next, um, I got so angry uh, that I wrote the song Set Me Free. And then, uh, you know, I mean, as, as successful as that song is, uh, it, 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 it wouldn't have been so without the input from Todd and Roger Powell and Willie Wilcox. So it was the band that made that song successful. The, the song came from, as most successful songs do, it came from a place of honesty and, and truth. And that usually resonates with, with any audience. Now, we, we could be here all night and all tomorrow talking about all the people that you've played with. But I do want to mention one last um, act, Meatloaf, who we yeah. sadly lost this year. You and Todd were involved, obviously, with uh, Bad Out of Hell. Did you have any uh, feeling at that time when you were working in that environment with Jim Steinman, with Todd Rundgren, producing it as well, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. that this was something just potentially a bit special um uh yeah special um i thought it was very i thought it was very um it didn't fit any mold it did not it wasn't hard rock it wasn't pop it wasn't r&b it wasn't blues it was this this conglomeration of a bunch of different genres that came together and uh and somehow made perfect sense um you know uh jim uh and and meat were determined to uh to make this record and todd to much to his credit heard something in it that that not too many people did um and 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 the the the, the combination of musicians myself todd Roy Bitten on piano and Max Weinberg on drums. It kind of brought the this music to life because it had never been played with a band before. So the four of us 
brought the music to life. We put our own little flair uh, on each and each part, and we created this this uh, this record that uh, I I honestly, Tim, I thought I would never hear it again after I finished recording the basic tracks and did some background vocals, I said to myself, I will never hear this record again. It is just too weird. It's too quirky. Nobody is going to get this. <laughs> a year and a half later, a year and a half later, after, after I finished my part, I was driving in my car, and I'm listening to uh, this popular radio station here in New York City, and I hear something vaguely familiar on the radio, and I said, where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah, that's the album that I did with Todd a year and a half ago. How great that they got that record on the radio. Love, I, I, I am so happy for them. Then it, it exploded, and uh, it is still to this day one of the biggest selling records of all time. Not, not a lot of people know that Todd actually paid for that to be produced. He was, he, he was under the impression that there was a record deal there when he went in yeah. and signed on as a producer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is that nobody else would have paid for it because nobody else heard it. Nobody else heard what Todd heard, what Jim heard, and what uh, and what Meatloaf heard. So, so it was this. The, just the the stars aligned for those guys, and um, and I am just beyond proud of my work on that record and uh it's a little piece of history that i was involved in and uh you know it, it it's popular pop culture that uh that i was lucky enough to get my name on i mean that's pretty that's pretty special do, do you remember walking in the room for the first time and seeing and meeting me i i do i, I do it was, i i it was it was the, the the weirdest experience of my. It was almost almost as weird as meeting Steve Hillage for the first time, because <laughs> I was a kid. That, now you know I came from uh, uh, the New York City. I was uh, you know I, I I grew up around the glam punk era in New York City, and uh, you know uh, it, it was a this totally different. Um, uh, set of rules that I came from, and when uh, when I met Steve, uh, all those rules were shattered. And then when I met Meat and Jim, and and they performed that record from top to bottom for uh, as a demo for the uh, for the musicians, for myself, Todd, um, uh, Max, and Roy. They. Did the, the entire record, Jim playing piano, Meatloaf singing live, Ellen Foley was in the room, and, and the background singer, Rory Dodd, was there as well. And I just sat there the whole time with my mouth agape saying, this, this is just, this is too much. This is, this is really, really funny. But at the same token, I got to take it seriously because it, it, it's, it, it deserves the seriousness. You went on to do... Um bad for good didn't you the album we all thought at the time was going to be the the new meatloaf album that jim yeah. steinman did himself because they, they'd fallen out yes i did we started that record about oh god i don't know uh maybe 1978 i think or maybe halfway into 78 we started bad for good 
And uh, it just, after recording, I think about maybe three or four basic tracks, like Out of the Frying Pan. Um, what else did we do? We did, uh, we did another song. I, I still have some of the uh, basic tracks on cassette in my, uh, in my studio um, because I had run a, a, a cassette player while we were doing it. Um, and it just kind of fell apart um, about halfway into it. Meat had had the falling out with Jim. Uh, he wanted to use his own band, uh, so he kind of let uh, let the the musicians that were working on the record go at that time. So uh, it was a, it was just a series of uh, of really sad things that uh, that wound up not. Uh, oh, I know what song it was. It was "Dance in My Pants." Dance in my pants. <laughs> Dance in my. Oh my God! Just even saying that is just so "Dance in My Pants." You know, it's just that's Jim. Um, and then yes, it wound up being a Jim Steinman solo record. <laughs> and in between never... all of that, your yeah. um, your live work. With Utopia, you played Nebworth. Had you yeah. had you been to to the UK or to, um, to Europe much before that? But playing well, that uh, seventy nine Nebworth, which was obviously the the last time we saw Led Zeppelin live. Yes, um, as a matter of fact, that was seventy nine. I thought it was seventy eight, but that's oh, it might okay. we well be seventy eight actually. <laughs> uh, no, it's 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 fine. Um, I had been to uh, to the UK a couple of times uh, because uh, Utopia played. We did a, a European tour early on uh, when, when I first joined the band. Um, and we actually played the old Vic uh, a couple of times before we uh, we released or before we even recorded uh, Ra, the first Utopia album that I played on. Um and uh, but I had never, certainly never been uh, uh, at an event that was uh, that large. I mean, we played. I think there was like three hundred thousand people at that Led Zeppelin Nebworth, um, and it was just, uh, it, it was just an experience I will never, I will never forget. I, I'm, uh, I am so grateful to have had that experience. Not too many people get that. Um, and uh, it was just, uh, it was a very, very, very exciting day. I saw somebody write somewhere that the tracks that you have worked on have, uh, between them, shifted around uh, 85 million units. Really? Really? Yes, 85 wow. million units. Huh. Wow. I mean, that wow. is... I mean that is quite staggering uh, when you when you look at the um, when you look at the broad swathe of of artists that you've worked on. Which, if it is indeed possible to answer this, what's given you the most pleasure in your musical life? Uh, uh well, I think I I think the the the. The aspect that I, I most appreciate and that I would probably hang my hat on if I had to give it up tomorrow is, um, is, is bringing some joy to people, actually, just through music. Um, it doesn't really matter what music it is. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, um, with Meatloaf, uh, 10, 10 sold-out nights at Wembley Arena one year. 
um, you know, and with uh, with um, Richie Sambora touring, you know, Japan and Australia, and uh, Hall and Oates, um, th- their acoustic tour that they had never done before, and were just trying out a different a different type of music for their for, for their career, um, and so there's all these these different uh, uh, um, aspects of what I do that it makes makes my that rounds out my entire career i uh i i just love the fact that i do something that um that people enjoy uh that brings people joy and uh this i don't think there's any one single event i mean i love doing my solo uh tours my solo shows i love writing songs um i I love doing my own records and i love playing with todd you know so it's always there's always some something in what i'm doing that i get the most satisfaction out of so it's i guess it's not just one thing it's a bunch of stuff Well, that was Kasim Sultan, who joined us from New York a couple of days ago. You will find Unsung, the podcast, on all of the main streaming platforms and indeed on its website as well. And that is it for this edition. My thanks to our guests, Andy Curran and Kasim Sultan. In the next edition of the show, Michael Schenker is back with a new album. We're going to be talking to Michael about that and the upcoming tour and from Canada. We're going back to Canada. Skullfist have a fantastic new album. It's coming out as well very soon. Uh, the founder and vocalist, Zach Slaughter, has been talking to me over the last couple of days, and we'll hear that interview is well ahead of Paid in Full, which is their new album, which is out this April. Well, that is it, playing us out of this edition. New from Slash and Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators. This is April Fool from the new album, Four. Thanks very much for your company. From me, Tim Cable. Till next time, bye-bye for now. (laughs) 